we have uh, the privilege of Dr. Schulmeister, Caroline Schulmeister, presenting at Grand Rounds today, a native of Connecticut. She uh, graduated with a BA in economics from Yale University and spent a couple of years in New York City as a patient care navigator and care coordinator, uh, one with the Cancer Services Program in Hell's Kitchen uh, of New York City. <clears throat> joined us here in the Upper Valley at the Geisel School of Medicine at Dartmouth, where she completed her MD degree and subsequently became a um, pediatric resident here at CHAD uh, three years ago. She uh, initially engaged in some work with Tyler Hartman around follow-up of high-risk newborns from the um, intensive care nursery and actually had a poster from that work, but then found her calling working with Dr. Charest and, and the topic she's going to speak to today. I found it interesting that she, in her career at Dartmouth, has been the recipient of both the Ford Von Ryan Research Fellowship in Global Health as a medical student and the Linda Von Ryan Scholarship at TDI for a certificate in the Fundamentals of Value-Based Healthcare that she completed this spring. So uh, the, the double, the, sort of the double, uh, the double hit. She, just like I mentioned last week, I've been impressed. This, these, these are Scott. This presentation is part of the way the residents meet their scholarly activity requirement for residency, but uh, our residents have not presented mere um, sort of book reports. Uh, Carrie's going to speak about something in which she's been deeply engaged clinically and, and from an, a scholarly and academic perspective with the transgender adolescent population and is going to hopefully continue that work as a, a fellow in pediatric endocrinology at UCSF starting in July. Welcome, Carrie. Can you hear me? Oh. Is this working? Okay. Hi. So today I'm going to talk about transgender medicine, um, which is an area of medicine that I first became interested in while working at a community health center in Health Kitchen prior to starting medical school. And it's an area that I plan on continuing to um, go into in fellowship and then eventually as a pediatric endocrinology attending. And for today, I'm going to specifically touch upon mental health in transgender medicine, which is an area that I did research on um, during my time here in residency. So I have nothing to disclose, no surprise here. Okay, so objectives for today. I'm going to review some definitions. Um, it's important for us to all be on the same page with this, and the language around transgender medicine is often very confusing and is constantly changing. I'm going to review some of the guidelines for care. I'm specifically going to touch upon the 2017 Endocrine Society guidelines, which were released this past fall. I'm going to review some past um, research in mental health, and I'm going to focus primarily on research performed within the United States. And this is different from the research or from the presentation that Dr. Spack did a couple years back, who focused a little bit more on research performed in the Netherlands. And then I'm going to review some of my own research here at Dartmouth. Okay, so at birth, most children are assigned a sex based on their genital anatomy. 
And for most people, the sex that they are assigned at birth corresponds to their gender identity. However, for gender non-conforming or transgender children, their gender identity does not correspond to their natal sex. And for the purpose of today's um, talk, I'm going to use the term natal sex to be equal to the sex that you're assigned at birth. Okay, so a few definitions. So gender identity is an individual's innate sense of feeling male, female, neither, or both. Gender expression is how someone presents themselves. So for example, someone who identifies as being a woman might wear a dress, or someone who identifies as male might have short hair. Um, and it's important to distinguish these two definitions because while gender identity is something that is fixed and cannot be changed, Gender expression is something that is often a reflection of one's own culture or society, and so therefore can change depending on where someone is raised or how they are raised. So a cisgender person is someone whose gender identity is congruent with their natal sex. A transgender man is someone who is natal female with a male gender identity. And then a transgender woman is a natal female with a female gender identity. And so it's very easy to get these two last two um, definitions confused. And so the thing that I recommend is just to think about what the person would want to be called. So for example, Caitlyn Jenner presents herself as a woman. Therefore, you would describe her as a transgender woman. And in general, when you are working with a population where you're not sure what they want to be called or how they identify, the recommendation that I give you is just to ask. Because not even, not, and not everyone even um, identifies with these two definitions. So much like sexuality, gender can be seen as on a spectrum. And so there are some people who do not identify with either male or female. And those individuals can be called genderqueer or gender non-binary. And those are ones that have, that have a gender identity that is neither male nor female. So how common is this? This is a question that I get pretty often. And unfortunately, it's a little bit of a mooting target. So in a study that was published in 2016, they, the researchers found that the prevalence ranged from 0.5 to 1.2% and was similar in natal males and females. A more recent study that was published in February of this year, um, researchers in Minnesota sent out surveys to 9th and 11th graders and what they found was the prevalence of gender nonconforming youth was around 2.7%. And this is an increase from the previous study that I mentioned. And even this number is probably under estimation due to underreporting. And so why is it that the prevalence seems to keep increasing? It is unlikely that the prevalence is actually increasing, but that more and more people are starting to self-identify as gender non-conforming. And this is likely related to the fact that our society is becoming more and more open to the idea of transgender individuals and gender non-conforming children and adults.
So one important distinction that I wanted to make today is that gender identity does not equal sexual orientation. And this can sometimes be confusing. Um, both groups often advocate together. They're often lumped together as one. And there are many similarities between the two. As I mentioned before, sexual and gender, sexual identity or sexual orientation and gender identity um, can both be seen on a spectrum. They are both something that are constant and cannot be changed. And they both have a history of being very stigmatized in our culture. However, when you see someone who is gender nonconforming, you cannot assume their sexual orientation. So just like asking someone what they want to be called, you also need to ask them who they are attracted to and who they have sex with. So how does a child's gender identity develop? So by two years of age, most children are able to state whether or not they are a boy or a girl. By three, they're using gendered pronouns. By four, they're using gendered toys. And while initially they might see gender as something that is subject to change, by five, most children understand that gender is a constant and will not change. <coughs> so by preschool, you'll often see children segregate based on gender and playing with more gender-typical toys. So for example, a group of little boys might be in, on one side playing with trucks and girls playing with dollhouses on the other. However, by school age, children tend to relax gender roles and view gender activities with more flexibility. And so gender atypical behavior is extremely common in school-aged children and may be part of normal childhood development. And so as you can imagine, many school-aged children who have gender atypical behavior do not persist to become transgender adults. And so as a result of this, it is sometimes hard to determine which children are going to persist and which will not. And there has been a lot of research around this area to try to predict which children will persist and which will not. But unfortunately, there's currently no clear method to predict this. Um, however, it might be something as subtle as a child stating, I am a boy versus I wish I were a boy. And then puberty happens. And puberty is hard for everyone. Uh, <laughs> but it's particularly hard for a transgender youth. Uh, that's because their hormones are increasing and they start to develop sex characteristics that align with their natal sex rather than the gender that they identify with. And as a result of this, it can be very distressing. Some transgender youth describe this as a betrayal of their own body because now they are realizing that they're going to have to live in an adult body that is not reflective of their true self. And as a result of this distress that comes along, that often comes along with puberty, that many children first present to transgender clinic during puberty or the beginning of puberty. However, one important finding was that uh, natal boys tend to present later to transgender, or tend to present earlier to transgender clinic uh, when compared to girls, despite the fact that they go through puberty later than natal females. And the thought around this is that our society tends to be more accepting of androgynous females. And so 
transgender males tend to be harassed less and have less social stigmatization compared to their transgender female counterparts. So how is the diagnosis made? So uh, children who are gender nonconforming can be given a diagnosis of gender dysphoria, which is a DSM-5 criteria and needs to, or DSM-5 diagnosis and needs to be diagnosed by a trained mental health care provider. And just like all DSM-5 diagnoses, there's a list of criteria that someone needs to meet in order to get this diagnosis. But in summary, gender dysphoria is the distress or discomfort that may occur when gender identity and assigned sex are not congruent. And it's important to note that gender dysphoria, the DSM-5 diagnosis, was a clear difference from or change from the DSM-4 diagnosis, which is gender identity disorder. Because previously, it was thought to be um, the psychopathology was based on the idea that someone has a different gender identity versus now where it is that the psychopathology is focused more on the distress that someone has by having a different gender identity. So now I'm going to review some care of transgender youth. And it can be divided up into two categories, mental, mental health intervention and phenotypic intervention, which includes social transition, hormonal intervention, and surgical intervention. So I'm first going to review a typical phenotypic timeline for a transgender youth. So first, a child generally goes under social transition, and this would involve changing the way that they dress, uh, their hair cut, or the way that they wear their hair, or the name that they're called in class. Once a diagnosis of gender dysphoria is made by a mental health care provider, a GNRH agonist is initiated. After that, gender-affirming hormone treatment can be started, such as testosterone or estrogen. And then for many transgender people, they do choose to pursue surgery in adulthood. So now I'm going to review the 2017 Endocrine Society guidelines. And these were published this past fall, and were an update to the 2009 guidelines um, that were previously published. And the 2009 guidelines are actually the first guidelines to address care of transgender youth. Prior to this, there are other guidelines, but they were focused primarily on the care of transgender adults. So in summary of the guidelines, they state that a trained mental health care provider should make the diagnosis of gender dysphoria in children. GNRH analogs should be started at the first sign of puberty, so Tanner 2. And then pubertal development of the desired sex should be initiated at approximately 16, with gradually increasing gender-affirming hormones such as testosterone or estrogen. So I want to take a little time to talk specifically about GNRH, because this is an important part of the treatment of a transgender youth, and it is a great treatment because it buys time. So GNRH agonists have been used for years prior to being used in transgender youth for the purpose of halting puberty in children who have precocious puberty. So it's a very well-known medication that has been used 
prior to this. And the great thing about it is that you can stop the medication and a child will go through puberty as previously expected. So it is considered an irreversible treatment that someone can use to give the child, the parents, and the provider time to determine if this child is going to persist to be a transgender adult prior to starting hormones such as estrogen or testosterone, which may be irreversible. So when you start GnRH agonists at a time when a child initially starts puberty, what you are doing is you are stopping puberty and also delaying or stopping the, the progression of secondary sex characteristics. So for a transgender woman, this would be facial hair or development of an Adam's apple. For a trans man, this would be development of breasts or changes in your fat distribution. And so there are many advantages to early GnRH treatment. By starting it, you can prevent the development of secondary sex characteristics, which is very psychologically disturbing to this population. And you can also decrease future surgical interventions. So for example, many trans women who have started hormone treatment after completion of therapy will have Adam's apples that they will want to get surgically removed in the future. And this procedure can be completely avoided if they had been started on a GnRH agonist at the start of puberty. And then also early transition, earlier transition um, is easier because it creates an individual's body that is neutral in an early pubertal state. And so as a result of that, people who start GnRH agonists at the initiation of puberty generally have better cosmetic outcomes. And so the, one of the big differences between the 2009 and the 2017 guidelines is that the 2017 guidelines give providers a little bit more leeway um, regarding starting gender-affirming hormones earlier than 16 years of age. And these recommendations are really a reflection of the fact that there are many larger, more established uh, transgender clinics in the United States who are already doing this. And there are many reasons why you might want to start gender-affirming hormones earlier rather than later. But one of the, the factors is that people recognize that being transgender is hard enough let alone waiting until you're 16 to go through puberty when your peers have done this years prior. And lastly, they touch upon surgery. So normally this occurs um, after someone becomes an adult or 18. And they recommend that you initiate this after at least one year of hormone treatment. So now I'm going to talk about gender nonconformity and overall health. So this is the article that I talked about earlier that was published in February of 2018. And as I mentioned before, uh, the researchers sent out surveys to 9th and 11th graders. And what they found was that those children who identified as being gender nonconforming had much higher rates of self-reported poorer health and decreased primary care visits compared to cisgender youth. And unfortunately, that does not improve through adulthood. 
So this is a diagram I'm sure you all have seen before. This is the adverse childhood experience diagram. And basically what it states is that if you have adverse childhood experiences, you have increased uh, medical issues in adulthood and then early death. And unfortunately, transgender youth are at high risk for adverse childhood experiences. They have increased rates of sexual and physical abuse as well as neglect and PTSD. And so in 2008, uh, researchers sent out a survey to over 7,000 trans adults. And it was a survey regarding general health. But one of the most shocking findings that they found from this study was that over, or that 41% stated that they had a history of a suicide attempt. And this was huge. This is more than 10 times the national average. And it's because of this finding that many people have gone on to try to figure out why this is happening and how we can make it better. So this is a study that was published in 2012, and this comes out of Boston Children's Hospital from their GEMS clinic, which is their transgender clinic. And this is a study that describes the demographics of the children who were in their clinic. And one thing they found was that the youth in their clinic also had history, a strong history of mental health issues. So 44% had a significant psychiatric history, 20% was self-mutilation, 9% attempted suicide at least once, and 37% were taking some sort of psychotropic medication. So as a result of many studies, people have been trying to figure out how to make this better. So this is a study that was published in 2016, and it comes out of University of Washington. And what they did was they surveyed 73 of uh, transgender youth uh, parents, and they compared them to matched cisgendered children. And what they found was that those that had socially transitioned and were supported in their gender identity had similar levels of depression and anxiety compared to cisgendered youth, thus suggesting that psychopathology is not inevitable within this population. So this is another study trying to figure out if mental health issues is inevitable. And this was published in 2014, and it comes from the Netherlands. And it is the only study that I'm going to talk about today that does not come from the United States. And the reason that I'm talking about it today is because it is most similar to the study that I performed here at Dartmouth. And so what they did was they tracked trans youth and to adulthood, and they did a longitudinal study to determine mental health through the process of transitioning. So they surveyed them before starting hormone treatment, after starting hormone treatment, and then after completion of surgery. And what they found was that after gender reassignment, psychological fun functioning had steadily improved, and well-being was simil similar to or better than same-age young adults from the general population. So now I'm going to take a little bit of time to talk about the transgender clinic here and uh, the research that I did within it. So hopefully by now you all know that a transgender clinic exists at Dartmouth. It exists both in Manchester and in Lebb. In Manchester, they meet about a couple times a month, 
and up here in lab, it's about once a month. And both are run by Nancy Charest. So here is our section chief of pediatric endocrinology. And then in addition, Dr. Ben Bow, who's over there in the corner, uh, also sees patients in LEV. All right, so now I'm going to talk a little bit about my study. It was the longitudinal mental health surveillance of transgender clinic within the Manchester Transgender Clinic. I did it along with Nancy Charest and the Manchester Clinic folks. So the objective of my study was to measure symptoms of anxiety and depression in transgender youth to determine correlation between timing of therapy and symptoms. And so there are similarities between my study and the Netherlands study. For both studies, it was, it was longitudinal. We were tracking uh, mental health through treatment. However, the Netherlands study does not differentiate between the children who were started on therapy prior to completion of puberty and compared them to those who started on therapy after completion of puberty. Our hypothesis was that anxiety and depressive symptoms would improve over time and that treatment earlier in puberty may improve mental health outcomes. So... First off, our project was IRB approved. We collected data from January of 2017 to March of this year, and the goal was to have one year of data per participant. So the participants were given surveys at each transgender clinic visit, and that is typically every three months. And they were given a 16-question survey that was based on GAD7 and PHQ-9, which are standardized surveys for tracking anxiety and depression uh, symptoms. At each visit, the surveys were always reviewed prior to the child going home to make sure that no mental health interventions needed to be performed immediately. And then at visit completion, participant scores, Tanner stage, and treatment were tracked. So I realize that you probably can't read this, but this is a picture of the survey that each child got at every visit. So I'm gonna talk a little bit about the demographics of our study. So we had a total of 59 participants, 42 of which identified as being trans men, and 17 as trans women. And as you can see, there is a pretty large predominance of trans men over trans women. And this was a little bit surprising to us since it's thought that the demographic is a little bit closer to 50-50. However, I will say that I've seen other studies coming out of the United States. Um, for example, the survey that, or the study I talked about earlier that came out of the GEMS clinic describing their population also noted a predominance of trans men over trans women. However, not to the extent of our study. Another very important demographic that I need to address is the fact that only five out of the 59 participants initiated hormone therapy prior to the completion of puberty. And so unfortunately, because of this finding, we were not able to differentiate if there was any difference in the mental health outcome um, when we compared to those who started therapy prior to completion of puberty compared to those who started after completion of puberty. However, we did show a decline in depression and anxiety over time. Uh, 
So this is a graph showing the PHQ-9 scores over time. The first point is their first visit. The fourth is their most recent visit. And as you can see, the PHQ-9 score decreased with time, thus showing an improvement in their depression symptoms over time. And when we compared visit one to visit four, the change in the PHQ-9 score between visits neared statistical significance with a p-value of 0.052. And then with anxiety, we also saw a decline, however, not as striking as the depression decline. And when comparing visit one versus visit four, the change in GAD7 score had a p-value of 0.21. So what were the conclusions from our study? So there was an obvious improvement of depression and anxiety in these children after treatment or over time. And participants had high scores, thus supporting the need for mental health care throughout treatment. However, a very important finding was the late onset of treatment that was noted in our population. So as I noted before, only 5 or 8% had started treatment prior to completion of puberty. And this likely reflects a delay in referral. However, it could be due to a number of factors. For example, provider or parent bias. It could be related to a delay in a mental health care provider diagnosis of gender dysphoria, especially in the setting of challenges finding a trained mental health care provider to make this diagnosis. And it also could reflect uh, insurance companies delaying providing the treatment that these, child, these children want. And it also could be related to our particular study's gender distribution and age limit for study participation. So as I noted earlier, we had a predominance of trans men over trans women in our study. And if you remember even earlier in my talk, I spoke about how trans men tend to present later in clinic than trans women due to the fact, or likely due to the fact that our society is more accepting of androgynous females when compared to their trans women counterparts. And so since we have a predominance of trans men in our study, it is likely that this is part of the reason why many children presented later in puberty to clinic. And then in addition, uh, our study only had children who are 11 or older in the study, mainly because the GAD7 and PHQ9 are, um, that's what the, that's the population that it is uh, credited for. Um, so as a result of that, um, there are likely a lot of children who are under the age of 11 who have not finished puberty but were not able to participate in our study. Okay, so future directions. So we need a better understanding of barriers, especially within our own clinic, to try to understand why children are not getting to clinic prior to the completion of therapy or puberty. And a larger study needs to be performed to understand if earlier treatment improves outcomes. And then lastly, there needs to be more long-term outcome research on prepubertal or adolescent youth in the United States. At this point, 
the majority of research within the transgender youth population comes from the Netherlands, the rest of Europe, or Canada. And so there is definitely a lack of research within the United States. And of note, the NIH, as of 2017, started funding a consortium of four institutions, which includes Boston Children's, Lori Children's, LA Children's, and UCSF, to help try to determine the factors that go along with early uh, treatment of transgender youth. So some take-home points. I hope that from today you recognize that this population often suffers from psychiatric comorbidities that worsen during puberty and that they have a high risk of suicide. As a result of this, early referral to mental health providers and endocrinologists is needed. And there's an ideal window of opportunity for patients to receive hormonal intervention. So hopefully they get referred out prior to completion of puberty. And even if they're too young for treatment, they can always benefit from counseling to cope with the difficulties of being or raising a transgender child. Okay, so before I go to questions, I wanted to thank Dr. Harris and the Manchester Clinic, who obviously helped me with my research and my interest um, in transgender medicine throughout residency, and then Drs. House, Matt, and Shepkin, who listened to this lecture multiple times and also helped me with my research, um, and to my family and friends who never thought it was strange that I was interested in transgender medicine. <laughs> depression and anxiety, even if these kids start to go through puberty. I don't know if you plan to assess parental opinions. I guess if they're being presented to clinic early enough, you already have sort of somewhat supportive parents. And right. How you can assess that, what you plan to look at that at all. So I think that there probably is a component of that. I also think that's probably why a lot of these kids are, as I said before, are presenting a little bit earlier. Um, but I don't know if there has been any research specifically on that because I think it's also hard to track, you know, how our society has changed and how that has changed the global population. Um, yeah. Shocking, Carrie. That was a great presentation, Carrie. Thank you very much. Um, you and I have talked about this a little bit. Well, Manchester is a city. It's not like San Francisco is a city. Yeah. And I'm wondering if you know of or have a perspective that suggests that our rural youth have higher disparities in care because the lack of trained mental health providers is huge. Like you can't live in Berlin, New Hampshire, and have a trained mental health provider who really has facility in dealing with the trans um, or gender nonconforming youth at age 10 um, compared to San Francisco, which I'm sure has a wealth Training mental health providers. So I'm wondering if there's any research about the discrepancy between rural youth and 
urban youth? We have not done any research on that. I do not know if there's, I think that subjective or we can see that that's an issue, um, definitely with the mental health care provider component, um, but I don't think that there's any research or data on that. That was a great talk, thank you. Um, I, I'm sitting here struggling with the idea that the conclusion <laughs> might be that the earlier parents and family are supportive of, of gender identity issue in their child, the better the outcome for the child in the long run. But then how do you match that with this behavior of five and six-year-olds that is considered normal and not ultimately part of transgender issues? Mm -hmm. So would they be encouraging a child, supporting a child who has a lead support and maybe even tipping the balance in a way that is inappropriate to that child. So I, you know, I think that it's probably good to support your child whether or not they end up persisting or not persisting. Um, I, I don't think that they're going to do anything wrong outside of, you know, helping them try to figure out who they're meant to be. Um, part of the advantage of GNRH, Agnes, is that it gives you more time to figure out whether or not a child is going to persist. But I think, you know, a lot of people struggle with the idea of whether or not my child is transgender or not at that age because it's sometimes confusing. But the recommendation I would give is just to support the child and where they're at at that time. Great job, Carrie. Um, I have a question about the DART screen. Yeah. Um, which we start here at age 13 with PHQ-9, the GAD-7. And there's a single question on that we want a number of things into, sexual orientation, um, gender identity. And I wonder what your thoughts are about um, a tablet-based screener as, that, as a modality for asking that question, mm -hmm. and what your thoughts are about age 13, whether we should be doing that earlier, and if so, how you think we should. I don't think it'd be a bad idea to do it earlier. Um, especially in kids who are kind of at the cusp of puberty. And if you feel, especially if someone is kind of presenting in a way that might be um, a little bit gender atypical, I think it's worthwhile to ask. Um, I'm not sure what the benefit would be of starting a tablet earlier. I think that, I think that starting it earlier would actually help. But um, I don't know how honest people are when they use the tablet, if they're going to be more honest than... Um, if you ask them face-to-face. -face. My understanding is that actually people are more honest on the tablet, so I do think that that would be useful. And I think that if the transgender clinic were able to organize it, that would also be a great place to hand out a tablet. I think, as you know, though, Steve, the, the, the issue is uh, screening versus surveillance, and whether you have a validated screening tool that actually is appropriate for a relatively highly small prevalence condition. So... It's a matter of surveillance may, may need to be better with what you do know is sort of working with the family and, and understanding where their child is. So I thought that would limit to next time. Um, I have two questions. So my first one is, is there a specific referral to the transgender clinic or do we just do a gender chronology? I think you just do it to endocrinology and you can write down transgender. Yeah. Yeah. It's, not, it's not specific. Okay. You just 
Just they all come to me. <laughs> but, but yeah, but it's, it's a regular endocrine referral. Okay. And then my second is, like, what is the earliest that you would consider starting hormonal treatment? Is it just pre-puberty, or, like, what would what be the earliest time? So they don't recommend that you start any sort of treatment until the initiation of puberty, um, and that you would start GNRH. And then after that, I think our clinic is still doing it at 16, but sometimes we make exceptions for other, for some children to start something like estrogen or testosterone a little bit earlier. In regards to the referral issue, how are we advertising or, or letting our state or our region know that, like, that we have these clinics? Is it out there? I mean, I, I know a little bit internally, but I know a lot of people externally that don't even know that these clinics exist. I think that's hard. Um, part of the movement has been towards educating primary care doctors in the region to make sure that they're aware that it, this exists. Um, I know Nancy has been on the radio a couple times. Um, <laughs> so maybe that's how people find out. But I think it's it's, just, it's on the internet, so you can probably find it that way. And I feel like that's way, the way that a lot of people find you know their care. Uh, but it, it is hard. It's hard in this population. I think it's much easier in populations where um, it's more densely populated. Is it in schools, or is information in public schools? I could not tell you that. I don't think so. Um, I've been out to about now a total of maybe 15 big pediatric practices in the state and try to distribute things that way. Um, I also was part of a panel discussion in Manchester for community workers, and we gave out, we have a brochure, and we, and we gave out the brochure, but it's a, uh, it's difficult in, in a, the rural parts of New Hampshire. I don't know how we would would, would reach those people. And, and it, you know, I, I get very concerned that that the the average age for all that I've been trying to do about what we have to offer, the average age of referral is about 15. So you know, now I do have a, a group of about 15 kids, and Ben, you probably have a few too where we're just waiting for them to go to puberty and give them a blocker. So, so I feel like the word is getting out a little bit about getting them in early so that we can start the, the blocker before um, you know the changes that they desperately don't want um, right. happen. Like school nurses. <laughs> I would say a huge resource. Yeah, I think that that's a very good idea. We do that for, for the diabetes program, right. you know, we, we do school nurses, but I haven't done it. Especially um, in North. Yeah. So, yeah. Dr. Turco and I actually had a presentation with a group of school nurses here, actually, probably about a year ago. Oh, good. There was, I don't know, 60 school nurses in this room. So, yeah. I found in my, anecdotally, my, the age is dropping of referrals. So, I, so it's, I think word of mouth and, it, you know, Dr. Turco has done a lot to establish you know, this is a gender clinic here. We have a transgender patient who shared, who went through gender reassignment surgery and shared with me that it's not a covered um, expense with most insurances, and the family paid almost $25,000 out of pocket to have the surgery. Is that still the trend? 
I could not tell you that. Yeah. So I would say the majority of my adults now have that benefit covered. Not 100%, but it is much better than it was five years ago. Mm-hmm. still have to write appeal letters, you know, and go through a, you know, a lengthy process, but it's, it's much improved. That, that seems to be an atypical case now. Again, it's not 100%, but it's the Affordable Care Act is, is by and large responsible for that. And states like Massachusetts and Vermont, which have mandated or uh, prevented exclusion, you know, exclusions within policies. You know, back in the 80s and 90s, it was pretty typical for an insurance plan to have a, a clause of exclusion, and some still do, saying we prohibit any coverage of gender identity or gender dysphoria surgery or treatment. Again, it's become less common. And even, you know, the, the GnRH analogs are being given as an every three-month injection of Lupron. They're $9,000 an injection. So, so either your insurance covers it or, or you don't get it. But I'm, I'm sure Ben would agree with that. In the last five years, it's gone from maybe 80% denial to 80%, 80-90% approval. So it's really changed pretty dramatically. Yes. Uh, so early on when this idea of using GNRH was introduced, I think there was a lot of hesitancy surrounding some of the questions that have been asked here about, you know, how do we know if this is just someone who's experimenting, if this is going to persist. Um, my understanding, but this is like word of mouth, not from actually looking at the literature, is that there are very few children who get started on GNRH and then decide that they do not want to go through with gender reassignment. Is that still the case? Is that evidence-based? Like, do we know what those numbers look like? The, there's way more numbers out there for people that go through the gender-affirming hormone treatment and the numbers that change their mind is very, very small, like 2% or less. I don't know if we have specific numbers on who we thought. I was going to include that for that. So this is just within the GEMS clinic, and it was just 70 patients that they had at the time when they published in 2012. And what they found was that there was just one who they started on a GNRH agonist who decided later on that she wanted to go through puberty um, that aligned with her natal sex. Um, and actually, what in the um, article, they kind of anecdotally talked about how she thought that giving the GNRH agonist was beneficial because it gave her time to figure out um, where she wanted or what she wanted to be um, in the future. And so, if anything, they felt like the adding the hormone was really beneficial to her development. Did you understand about that native puberty from reinitiating sugar? That's right. No, it comes back pretty quickly. That's the beauty of starting the GNH analog is not a definitive treatment per se. So, for that rare case, it still allows for them to find their way. But it seems like there's some time that, that kids know we just can't pin down. And there's some variability, but it seems like for the majority of kids, even prior to puberty, they will have a good handle on which direction they're headed. Yeah, I mean, the, the dogma for, for the endocrinologist is, to, is the reason, one of the reasons you don't start the puberty blocker before the puberty is there's nothing to block. But the other reason is that <laughs> is that kids who are getting more distressed even when they're 10 or 2, okay, about their gender not matching their body, the 
chances of that not being, of it being a stage is very, very, very small compared to somebody the same age who hasn't, even, hasn't started puberty yet. So the numbers get better for persisting if they show some evidence of puberty before they start treatment. Convened a gathering for behavioral health clinicians with some experts from Jones to help increase the skill. As, as uh, Carrie mentioned, they are totally reliant on having a uh, diagnosis uh, from a mental health clinician to confirm that there's true dysphoria. That's not that fair. Yeah, I, I, I think that the, the if I if I lose sleep over these patients, it's because the diagnosis is not in my hands, it's in the hands of mental health providers, and Ben and I are depending on community mental health providers to make this diagnosis, and the number who have any experience are kind of few and far between, and so we're, we try to get them to somebody who has some experience, but sometimes we're making a decision based on somebody who maybe this is their second patient and they're making this diagnosis. So. We're, we're hoping the child psychiatrists here have agreed to start seeing these kids and um, you know are going to develop some a plan on there, there are surveys and questionnaires and all sorts of things to decide whether somebody fits the criteria for gender dysphoria um, and you know hopefully um, as, as the years go by we'll have more and more therapists um, psychologists, psychiatrists who feel comfortable in making this diagnosis. This, this might not be a question you can answer, but do you know of any place that provides training for mental health providers around um, gender dysphoria issues? Yeah, there's an organization called WPATH, World Professional Association of Transgender Health, and they provide trainings around the country. Um, that are their guidelines are quite comprehensive. Oh, thank you. When's the last time they've had a training in New England, Do you know? I'm not aware. I mean, nothing recent, but yeah. Chicago and yeah. out west. Yeah, we, um, just looking back at your actual research, um, we had noticed, and I noticed that by the fourth visit, you had your end had decreased a lot. Yeah. I was wondering if you guys had looked at um, what happened to those missing ends or missing populations. Was there any characteristics that came out about that? There was nothing. It was not that they dropped out or anything. It was just that I was set to graduate. <laughs> and so we stopped. <laughs> so I stopped collecting the data so that I could get um, it analyzed for this end for so my PS poster. Yeah. No, no one dropped out as far as I know. I think it's just that they we didn't have enough time to give them a year's worth of surveys. I think you have to qualify these numbers by knowing that they did a very thorough psychological assessment before they would let someone go in. So there were people who were excluded, including people who had major psychological or psychiatric diagnoses. Mm -hmm. So I'm not surprised that in this population very few switched over because they did a great job up front. There is a person in Canada who believes that this transition does change over time and that puberal hormones actually contribute to the change, mm -hmm. which is the other controversy. But my question to you is, as a budding endocrinologist, do you think this has its origins in endocrinology? 
I mean, we're clearly part of the treatment, but mm -hmm. what is the origin of this? I think that there's a lot of questions regarding that. I think. There has been research on whether or not this is something that someone is, or what, what are the factors that causes this to happen. And some people do feel like it is um, hormonally based. Um, and that's based on research done on, on CAH children, um, because they have found that those kids who are exposed to androgens in utero are more likely to become transgender than compared to cisgender youth. And so there is a component of that, although I think it's still hard to tell where, you know, how, why this is coming. I don't think anyone's ever shown a difference in the endocrinology of the individuals, right? Not at all. I mean, I can't, can't tell you how many turn of vaccines to measure hormones and chromosomes, and, but no, there's no evidence that there's any difference. Right in the back. Yeah. Great um, I have a question about, I have a friend whose child identified very, very early on, like maybe three um, and four with um, not um, not identifying with, she was born a girl, but never at that young age started identifying that she was in fact not and wanted to be a boy and that's what she was meant to be. So by five or six was very much, had her hair cut, name changed. Is there anything within your clinic with children that young for for parental support on on raising a child that young and getting them prepared for the hormonal treatment? And I know you said that generally the referrals come in around 15, but when your child is that young, mm -hmm. how do you? Is there any support within your transgender clinic for for a parent to to prepare for that and get their child prepared? So I think coming to clinic is always a good idea because you can talk to an endocrinologist. I think. Also, they should see a mental health care provider as well um, to d deal with that. But actually, within our transgender clinic, we do have a support group um, that meets at lunchtime at every visit, at least in the Manchester one. And so what happens is that the kids all go in one group and the parents go in another group. Um, in this scenario, if a child is much younger than the other kids in the group, they might not, might not always be appropriate for the child, but maybe you can try it out. But either way the parents can get together and they kind of talk about their experiences and how things have gone. And I think that could also be really helpful for someone in this scenario. We offer that program. Yeah, we have a support group here and it's just, it's not at noon, it's at 2.30 on the first Tuesday of the month and a group run for the parents and one for the kids. Well, I think you're all well. Caught up, although the conversation can continue. And uh, Carrie, congratulations. <laughs> <laughs>